Let's pray. God, we ask that as we open up our Bibles, that you'd open up our hearts and that you'd speak and that your voice would be louder and clearer and more defining for us than all of the voices in this culture. And may you make us attentive to your voice and in attending to your voice, would you change us here and now this morning? And we ask this in Christ's name and all God's people said, Amen. So if you've been around the church world for any extended period of time and you've seen other capital campaigns, one of the things that's very common is that at the end of a building renovation project, a capital campaign, a preacher will resign. They will leave the church. Now, there's a lot of different reasons for that. Uh, One is just burnout. So Capital campaigns, building renovations, they are labor-intensive for pastors, and so guys get burned out. But, you know, another reason for that is sometimes the project itself is kind of the big vision that is driving the church. It's the climactic moment that they're moving towards. But once they get there and they've achieved it, the pastor feels like, well, we made that goal, and I don't really know what to do next, and so we're going to hand the reins over to someone else. Listen, I want to be clear that as we move forward in the next couple of years and as we, we pursue this capital campaign, this building renovations, I, I want to be clear that our project is not our vision. Our vision is to become a faithful community of witnesses to Jesus Christ in word and deed that leads our friends, our neighbors, and our coworkers, and our colleagues, and our schoolmates into a transforming relationship with Jesus. Our vision is to be a community that embodies the hospitality and the love of God and the justice and peace of God in our life together in such compelling ways that people around us want to meet Jesus and be transformed. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to talk to you about the practice that really stands at the heart of faithful Christian witness. I want, I want to talk to you about the practice that if we neglect, our words will mean nothing. And it's the practice that Jesus gave to us of neighbor love. And so what I want to do is I want to invite you to enter into the most famous, uh, the story par excellence that really reflects what neighbor love is all about, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so we're going to dive into this. We're going to kind of explore it. Then I'm going to stand out back. And I want us to see how this, this parable might speak to us today. So the story begins in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And so if you've turned there, check out verse 25. It says this, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I want you to notice that this very familiar story of the good Samaritan is prompted by a question. And it's a good question. It is the most important of questions. It is the question about life itself. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So it's a good question. But I want you to see it's not an honest question. It's a test. It says the religiously, the lawyer put him to a test. Now, when you hear that a lawyer was putting Jesus to the test, don't think Larry H. Parker. Uh, Rather think a Bible scholar. That's what this man was. He was a scribe. Uh, he was a person who, who was a Bible expert. And so he's really the standard of orthodoxy within kind of like the Jewish community. And he's heard about Jesus who is an uncredentialed, itinerant teacher. And so he goes to test Jesus to see if he's legit. 
Now, notice what happens. Jesus turns the tables in such a Jesus-y fashion, and the one who is the examiner becomes the examined. Uh, To the one who asks the question, now Jesus turns and puts to him a question. And he said to him, what is it written in the law? How do you read it? The great uh, Jewish philosopher Elie Wiesel was once asked by an interviewer, why do you Jews always answer a question with a question? To which he responded, why not? (laughs) Well, this Bible scholar is no slouch. He's a student of Torah. He's got all of his letters, and he answers with excellent biblical acumen and the perfect correctness that that you would come to expect from a, a man of his Bible knowledge. He answered, well, here's the answer, Jesus. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And look at Jesus' answer. Jesus looks at him, and he doesn't say, uh, you know, he, he looks at him and he says, you have answered correctly. Good job, Bible teacher, my young Padawan, great job. And then he says this, do this, and you will live. Now, the implication is not flattering for the Bible scholar. It's one thing to study, interpret, teach, explain, and memorize, and pour over God's word, but it's another thing to do it. Jesus seems to say, look, your Bible knowledge is worthless if it doesn't manifest itself in a life of love. Now, the exchange could have ended right there, but it doesn't because the text says that the man felt a need to justify himself, but he desiring to justify himself. You know, the human heart runs on self-justification like my car runs on gasoline, doesn't it? And this man, he, he, he feels the sting of Jesus's rejoinder. And kind of in in an effort to regain control of his examination of the itinerant teacher, he, he puts to Jesus a notoriously difficult question. He says, okay, Jesus, I'm supposed to love my neighbor. Well, let me ask you, who is my neighbor? Now, this was a question that the rabbis in Jesus' day discussed, discussed often, and some said that your neighbor was, you know, a faithful Jew, and others said that the, the neighbor was any Jew, but nobody said that neighbor love crossed all racial and socioeconomic boundaries. Nobody was saying that. And there's reason for that. It's because many of these guys poured over their Old Testament, and here's what the Old Testament uh, passage where that command to love neighbors comes out of, listen to how it seems to define neighbor. It says this, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, according to this passage, who is your neighbor? Well, it looks like the passage is saying that your neighbor is your people. You know, your people. You know, we all, my people, your people, you know, uh, it's as the passage is saying, look, uh, your neighbor is your people. It's my people. That's who I am called to love with creativity and ingenuity and redemptive and practical love. But the people who are outside of that circle, well, I don't need to pay attention to their needs. And so the, the, the man says, well, who is my neighbor? 
And Jesus answers, he says, well, that reminds me of a story. And the story begins with a man on the road to Jericho. Look what it says in verse 30. It says, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, everybody in the crowd that was listening to Jesus knew how dangerous this road to Jericho was. It was 17 miles long, a 3,300-foot descent. It had twists and curves and caves and crevices, and it was just notoriously dangerous. Robbery, not uncommon. Murder, not infrequent. And as this man is on his 17-mile journey, he's jumped by some thugs, he's robbed, he's stripped naked, he's beaten, and he's left for dead. But... Look what happens. As luck would have it, a priest shows up. It says in verse 31, now by chance, a priest was going down the road. Now, this is profoundly lucky because the priest would have known the Old Testament scriptures. If you saw uh, your neighbor's donkey caught in a ditch, you, could, you would have to drop everything and go help retrieve your, your, your neighbor's donkey from the ditch. And if you had to retrieve your neighbor's donkey from the ditch, how much more your neighbor from the ditch? But the luck is short-lived because it says that the priest saw him and he passed by on the other side. And after the priest, likewise a Levite. And when he came, he also saw and he also passed by. Now, question, why do they pass by? I mean, why would you walk by a guy who's laying half naked, half dead on the road? Well, maybe the priest was afraid of compromising his purity. He's probably on his way to serve his duty as a priest in the temple. And if you touched a dead body, it would defile you for up to a week. And so maybe he thought, I can't, I can't endanger myself with that. Maybe, maybe the priest and the Levite were just afraid. You know, if, if this guy was just jumped, who's to say that the thugs are not still hiding in the rocks? You know, we better protect ourselves. We better not get involved in this mess. And maybe, though... Maybe it was just that here on the road, the lonely road to Jericho, they had no audience watching. And what good are good, righteous acts of piety if there's no one there to see it? Well, whatever the case is, they see the man and they walk by. But then as the story goes on, it says, verse 33, but then a Samaritan, and all listening, their, their jaws would have dropped, you know, this is unbelievable. Jesus knows what a Samaritan meant to the Jews in his culture. The Samaritans were half-breeds. They were half-Jews at best. They were lesser humans. There was a racism there. They were not their people. They were their enemies. But notice, in contrast to the Levite and the priest who see and walk by, this Samaritan, he sees the man on the side of the road, but he sees differently. The first two saw with indifference, but the Samaritan sees with compassion. It was Eli Wiesel who said that the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. The opposite of art is not ugliness, it's indifference. The opposite of faith is not heresy, it's indifference. The opposite of life is not death, it's indifference. 
And so these two men, they come and they see, but they are indifferent. But the Samaritan comes and he sees, and his scene is overwhelmed with compassion that leads to action. And he seems to know exactly what to do as if he does this all the time. Notice what it says. But the Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was. He saw him and he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds and he poured on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two days worth of denarii and gave it to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when you come back. I mean, the Samaritan seems to know exactly what to do. Like he does this thing all the time. He doesn't hesitate to use his own clothes for a bandage. Perhaps he took off his sash or his head wrap and he expends his own oil and wine and puts the wounded man on his own donkey, which he has been riding and he now walks alongside, holding the man up so he doesn't fall off. And then he pays for two days at the inn. But he's shrewd as well. You know, he doesn't put limitless cash in the innkeeper's hands, but he promises to pay the rest at his next regular trip up the road. You know, he's practical and businesslike. You know, his compassion is not sentimental, but real and effective. And now Jesus stands back and he looks at us. He looks at the Bible scholar, he looks at all of us. And he says, which one of these men proved to be the neighbor? And you just imagine the Bible scholar saying, at first he starts to say, it was the, s- 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 it was the one who showed mercy. Yeah. <laughs> and Jesus says, now go and do. Go and do likewise. And do you see what Jesus has done here? He's turned the question from who is my neighbor to will I be a neighbor? Which one proved to be a neighbor? He says, now go and do likewise. He says, who is my neighbor? But Jesus says, go and be a neighbor. And he's calling us to radical, creative, redemptive love for our neighbors. Listen, our life reflects our loves. Who we love, how we love is the real index of our hearts before God. Or as John, one of Jesus' followers put it, if anyone has the world's goods, which probably includes most of us, and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how can the love of God abide in you? You know, it's possible for us to know all the right answers and yet live the wrong life, isn't it? And churches get mixed up about this. We sometimes think that spiritual people are the people who know a lot about the Bible and can give all the correct answers. But listen, the main thing isn't your Bible knowledge and it's not your religious involvement. And it's not your doctrinal correctness. That's all important, but you can have all of that and still be completely lost. You know, some of the most awful people I've ever met are people who are really knowledgeable and they're in church. And so Jesus is calling us. He's saying, look, if you want to be effective in the, in the months and years ahead as a community, then you need to embody the way of life that you see reflected in this Samaritan. Radical, creative, entrepreneurial, practical, real effective love of neighbors. But, you know, I want you to see in our story, Jesus, I think, though, is not stopping with that call. I think Jesus is actually doing something a little bit more subversive and challenging than all of that. 
I think in our story, Jesus is actually subverting and challenging some of those barriers that actually prevent us from living into the life that we see in the Samaritan. And there's two barriers that I, I want us to just consider how Jesus addresses in this story. And the first barrier is the barrier of prejudice. You know, without question, this story would have been jarring in the first century. Because the hero of the story is the person who is despised and looked down upon in their culture. It was the Samaritan. And he's the hero. And Jesus here is deconstructing their prior prejudices. He's pulling them apart and he's saying, look, you need to look past the prejudice and see the person. Genuine love, Samaritan love crosses boundaries. And listen, this is really the most basic lesson in this story. Genuine love... The love of God actually crosses boundaries from my people, and it moves out to all people. There is a wideness to God's mercy, the hymn says, like the wideness of the sea. And so this story is the embodiment of Jesus' radical and most powerful idea, and that was the idea of enemy love that our love stretches well past our own people who are just like us, and it stretches out to people who are not my people, and it stretches out beyond that to even the despised enemies. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., in a sermon on Jesus' words, on Jesus' call to love enemies, put it like this. He said, look, the words of this text, love your enemies, glitter in our eyes with a new urgency. Far from being the pious injunction of a utopian dreamer, this command is an absolute necessity for the survival of our civilization. Yes, it is love that will save our world and our civilization, love even for enemies. You know, I was thinking about that, th those words this week, and I just thought, you know, it is 2010, I mean, it's 2020, it's not 2010, is it? <laughs> Feels like just yesterday, doesn't it, Pastor Anderson? Just yesterday, it was 2010. It's 2020, we're... We're looking down the barrel of another election cycle. I don't know if anyone was aware of that. Political season. But things get nasty in political season. And you know, the last four years, I just feel like the whole political season is dividing families. It's dividing churches. Because you got people on different sides of the aisle and they can't stand the others. They don't know how to enter in sympathetically and understandingly for even people they might consider their enemies. And yet here in the story, Jesus is saying, move out and love enemies. Pull apart your prejudice and move toward people who you don't think are your people. And yet this is so counterintuitive for us, isn't it? That's not my gut reaction toward people that I don't like or people who are disgusting to me or people that I think are across, you know, barriers. There's a really bad pastor joke told about this. But a man who was on a bridge, he was about to jump. And this other man runs up to him. He says, don't do it. And the man says, but nobody loves me. And he said, well, God loves you. Do you believe in God? And he said, yes. And then the other man said, well, are you a Christian or a Jew? And he said, a Christian. And he said, me too. Protestant or Catholic? And he said, Protestant. He said, me too. What franchise? He said, Baptist. He said, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? Northern Baptist. He said, me too. A Northern Baptist, Northern Conservative Baptist, or Northern Liberal Baptist? Northern Conservative Baptist, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes region, or Northern Conservative Baptist, Eastern region? 
Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. He said Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region of 1912. And he said, die, heretic, and threw him off the bridge. <laughs> but doesn't that capture something? You know, if, if, you, if, you're, if you're like me, and you think like me, and you vote like me, and you act like me, and your skin is the same color as mine, and you have kind of the same socioeconomic background, the same sensibilities as I do, well then look, I'm very compassionate and understanding towards you. You know why? Because the most compassionate and understanding person, that, or the, the person who, for whom I am most sympathetic for, the one who I understand most, who I'm always trying to justify, is myself. And so the people who I find most easy to justify and look past all of their foibles, are people just like me. But everyone else, it's die, heretic. Do you see this in yourself? Jesus is exposing our tendency to caricature and to stereotype and to be harsh and critical and post mean things on Facebook and relish in mean-spirited speeches or articles or things that tear the others down that we don't like. Zan Lamont who said, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. In St. Augustine's Confessions, there's this prayer that he utters. It's striking to me. He says this. He says, God, my heart is cramped. It is too cramped for you to enter. Widen it out. Who are the people groups in your life for whom your heart is actually too cramped for them to enter? Your imagination, your compassion and love. Pray that God would widen it out. It's so easy to caricature and to stereotype and to think the worst about people who you don't actually know. But when you get to know someone's stories, it's funny how that all changes, isn't it? I can remember when I was uh, candidating with this church, you know, one of the things that they have you do is uh, you fill out a questionnaire. And one of the questions that I was asked on this questionnaire was, uh, give us your thoughts about how the church should respond to the gay community. And... I looked at that question, I just thought, I, 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 I don't know the gay community. I, I know Carlos and Darren who live across the street. I've sat with them, they've been in my home, we've, we've, I've, I know their story, I know them. They're, they're not like a, a block of people that I have a bunch of ideas about. They're individuals with names and faces and stories who have dignity and worth in the eyes of God, and who also have their own brokenness and their own insecurities and their own fears and their own self-hatreds and all of the stuff that I have. Listen, this is a call. Jesus is calling us in this story to move past the prejudice, the stereotypes, and the caricatures, and to move toward the person and to enter into their story. And when you enter into stories and you hear and you learn and you experience and you understand people, you can actually more faithfully and honestly and truly and sacrificially and practically love them. It's hard to love a caricature, isn't it? 
And so Jesus is confronting in this parable, to be sure, our prejudice, and he's dismantling it. He, this, is, this parable is like a little bomb. He's setting right up next to all of the prejudice in our hearts, and he's letting it detonate there. But he moves from our prejudice to a second, I think, issue that actually, a second barrier that really prevents us to move into neighbor love, and that's paternalism. You know, they're dangerous on all sides, aren't they? You know, you, you might feel like you've done a great job overcoming the, your own prejudice in your hearts. There's no one you won't hang out with. There's no one you won't go to. You don't look down on anybody. You're, you're, you're good. You know, you're the, you're the hero, actually. You help all of those poor, broken, hurting people. And I think this is really the mentality of the, the, the lawyer who came to Jesus, the Bible scholar. He was the hero, Paternalism is a real issue. There's a story of a church that was in a fairly well-to-do suburban neighborhood, big mega church, and they had put together this massive uh, service project. They were going to go down into the urban core of the city, and they were going to serve in this at-risk, you know, under-resourced, poor community. And they went down there together, and they kind of like to galvanize the church around this whole thing. They, they gave, it a, they branded the whole kind of like serve day as serving the last, the least, and the lost. And then they made these t-shirts that said, serving the last, the least, and the lost. And then they went into this urban neighborhood, and they went into kind of the downtown, the, the center, the, you know, kind of uh, facility that served and resourced these people, and they were painting inside of there. And when they were done painting, they invited members of the community to come in and to thank, you know, the people that had come down and served them. And uh, this primarily white, affluent, uh, suburban church members. They were all painting you know, their face to the, the wall. And then all at once, they all turn around with these big shirts, looking at these urbanites who come in there that says, serving the last, the least, and the lost. You know, there is an air of paternalism about this lawyer. He is the one who asks the questions he presents himself as the one who does good to others. He can't imagine himself as the recipient of someone else's help, as the one who is in need. He can't imagine himself needing a neighbor. I mean, he's a Bible scholar. He has the answers. He conducts the tests. He's the religious master. He's the dispenser of righteousness. His posture in life is of that of righteous man before God. And therein lies his fatal weakness. I don't know if you thought about this, but this story is odd in the extreme. You know, um, th this is one of those stories that has three types, you know, that are all supposed to fall into one category. You know, it's like one of those jokes we tell about the, the minister, the priest, and the rabbi, or the blonde, the brunette, and the redhead. And what kind of, like, the, the, the device you're using there is you're taking three types and you're putting them together in one category. At first, it looks like Jesus is telling that kind of a story because he's got a priest, a Levite, and the third member would logically be a lawyer, a Bible scholar, a priest, a Levite, a Bible scholar. But that's not the story Jesus tells. Jesus throws a curveball at us. What does he do? He's got a priest, a Levite, and a, a Samaritan? You've got the despised and the rejected one. He's the third. He doesn't even fit. 
Where's the scribe in the story? And, you know, if Jesus would have told the story about the priest, the Levite, and the scribe, I mean, the, the, the scribe that came to Jesus, the Bible scribe, he would have known, like, okay, I get it, I get it, Jesus. Uh, I'm, I, in this story, I'm supposed to be the scribe that crosses social boundaries and loves the Samaritan on the side of the road. Like, I, I can do that. It will be hard. I know I will cross the boundaries because, I, Jesus, I can be the hero of this story. The world is mine to save, Jesus. I will... I'll do it. I'll do it, Jesus. I'll be the hero in the story. But that's not the story Jesus tells. Where's the scribe in the story? It's a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. I suggest to you the scribe is the man who was stripped and beaten and left for half dead in the ditch. And I suggest that Jesus is subverting this whole man's worldview. He's saying, look, you are not the helper you think you are. You are like that man who sits in a ditch in need of a neighbor, even a despised and rejected neighbor, one who is cast out from their people. And Jesus is saying, look, you are not the helper you think you are. You are not the good, nice, strong, religious person you think you are. You're the man in the ditch in need of a neighbor, and I have come to be your great Samaritan. I have come at great cost to myself to meet your need. And I, like the Samaritan, was despised and rejected and cast off from my people. And I didn't just get down from a donkey. I left the glory of heaven and came into earth to identify with you on the side of the road. And I didn't just get jumped by thieves. I gave up my life on a cross between two thieves. And I have come so that you might be rescued and healed, so that you might find God as your neighbor, even as you see yourself as a person in deep and dire need. Listen, this is where the Christian life begins. It begins not when you see yourself as a strong, good, moral, religious person. You know, I, I think a lot of people, they think, you know, I can remember years ago, um, I, I, re- I remembered I, I, I started going to the gym and I started to try to work out and build some muscle because my, my sister-in-law was dating a guy who was a bodybuilder and it just looked really embarrassing when we'd go over to the house and we'd go in the spa and then him and me and, it, you know, it's hard to imagine now because I, the way I look, but... <laughs> But I remember going to the gym and feeling so insecure and uh, not knowing how to use the equipment and feeling kind of out of sorts and thinking, I just need to start working out if I could just learn a little more knowledge and get like the rest of these people. Some of you feel like that when you come to church. You feel like a little bit out of sorts. You don't really, you don't know the songs. You don't know what you're supposed to do. And, and, and you feel like I'm not, li- I'm not as good as everyone else here. I have good news for you. You're surrounded by a bunch of people who are broken mess and in deep need of a savior. We are a community of people who are fallen in a ditch in need of a neighbor. And so if that's you, this is where it begins. It begins with you recognizing, I am lost, I am in need, I need grace in my life. That is where the Christian life begins. There's a story that I heard uh, a while back by 
this documentarian, whose name was Brian Ivey, and he wrote, he created this documentary called The Dropbox, and it followed the story of this South Korean pastor who, um, who was taking in disabled and uh, abandoned little babies. So I, I guess in Korea at the time, there was a big problem with people abandoning babies that had uh, deformities and, and such. And so this guy put a sign in the front of his house and said, uh, drop your baby here, I will take care of it. And this man, Brian Ivey, he heard this story, and he wasn't a Christian, but this, this man who was taking these children in was a Christian, actually a minister. He was 59 years old, and at one point, when Brian Ivey was there in Korea, he had 20 disabled children in his home, little babies. Could you imagine at 60 with 20 disabled babies in your home? And he said he would look over at this pastor and see him grinning from ear to ear. And Brian Ivey became a Christian while he was making this film. And he said this, quote, he said, I saw all of those kids come through this drop box with deformities and disabilities, and eventually, like a flash from heaven, I realized that I was one of those kids too, that I have a crooked soul, and that God is a father who loves me still, and that God's love is not some smalchy cup of coffee thing. It goes to the gutters for the lost and broken in this world. Friends, that's where it begins, but that's not just where the Christian life begins, that's where it continues. You know, it continues in mission. We, we will only be effective in the mission that God has given us if we repent of any form of paternalism, if we repent of our prejudices, if we recognize day by day that we are people in need of God's grace in our own life and that God in Christ has left heaven and has come to earth in order to rescue us and bring us out of darkness. God, I just ask that your spirit would break forth in this place and that you administer to us now, even as we come with honesty, recognizing our needs. Meet us, we pray in Christ's name, amen.